Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And I'm speaking to Professor Andrea Whitcomb, Deputy Director... Um, Alfred Deakin Research Institute, Faculty of Arts and Education, Director, Cultural Heritage Research Centre for Asia and the Pacific. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Beth. It's a real pleasure to be here. Now, look, could you tell us what is cultural heritage? Sure. It's actually, you know, not a very easy question to answer because like with many things, there are many different understandings and definitions. So I suppose I would start at the um, sort of common sense level and then try and complicate that a little bit for you. So I think, you know, if, if any one of your listeners went to the dictionary and looked up the word heritage, um, what they would get is a definition that would point to the things that are left to us from the past. So there's a, a kind of understanding that heritage involves some kind of legacy from our ancestors to us in the present and that they it's really certainly in the west understood around the material world around objects so we might think about uh, objects like buildings so cathedrals for example are part of heritage or the built environment more generally um, famous buildings by famous architects art uh, decorative arts um, and then there would be family heirlooms of various sorts, particularly in well-to-do families. And then more recently, there has been a kind of democratization of that idea. So we now extend the concept of heritage to um, objects in everyday life. So, for example, I have a recipe book from my grandmother. That's part of my heritage right yeah. or um, a family photo album that contains family heritage for people so there's a kind of more understanding that heritage also encompasses more ephemeral um, things in the world now in academia when we actually do um, engage in this field of study called heritage studies we're not so interested in studying heritage as in studying things and their meanings so much as the process by which those things come to have meaning in the present. So what that means is that we're interested in the kind of political processes, the cultural processes, the institutional and bureaucratic systems through which those things from the past come to have meaning in the present. So we might study how heritage legislation develops for example and then that shapes what we come to what we used to call in Australia the national estate right or uh, we might study the role of institutions like museums or national trusts in the production of heritage so there's this idea that heritage is not just a thing it's also a process and the reason that that's important is that then what that tells us is that heritage has to do with the way in which people use the past to create a sense of themselves and of others. So it builds relationships to people, people to people, people to objects, people to places. 
And then, of course, there's a whole politics about how that is done, who it includes, who it doesn't include. Right. So within this, what is your work about? Okay. So my work is um, is actually sort of saying I understand that much of heritage has to do with the building of individual and community identity, whether that be at the national level or at the really local level. But I'm actually interested in heritage spaces like museum exhibitions and like heritage sites for the ways in which they might be able to be used to actually stage cross-cultural encounters. So by that I mean I'm interested in the ways in which heritage as a resource can be used not only to reinforce established identities but actually to question those identities and ask questions about our relationships to other people and to other groups. Right. So um, you've done some work on the Holocaust Museum Melbourne, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, I have. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, well, that, that sort of began with a, a, a group of historians who um, are historians of, of the Holocaust and who did a lot of work with the Holocaust Museum in, um, here in Melbourne um, and have been involved in their project of doing um, video testimonies and studying that, that collection, that archive of video testimonies by survivors of the Holocaust. I became involved at a point where we began to um, sketch out a project to do a history of that centre, of that museum, and I got very taken by the use of art objects within um, their exhibition and because a, a, a lot of the story is told through photographs and survivors talking about their experiences in relation to those photographs, which are... You know, come from various archives and collections around the world, but the the museum had extended its um, exhibition by introducing objects that had been made by survivors, and I got really interested in that. And one of these was a model of Treblinka. Now, Treblinka was um, not a concentration camp; it was a death camp. It was where people were taken to just be killed. And there were 70 survivors in the world from that camp, one of whom, Mr. Steyer, had lived in Melbourne. And he died in 2008, and I was lucky enough to, to get to meet him by, by this model that he made of the camp. And I, I was interested in it because I had seen other models of camps, camps like Auschwitz, for example, at the Imperial War Museum in London and at Yad Vashem in Israel and um, at the Museum of German National History in Berlin. And these were all models that had been done by professionals um, and whose aim was to document the the. the existence of a camp and the way it worked. So it was the, the kind of um, motivation for, for their existence was, the, was in terms of an educational um, aim, the provision of information. And it seemed to me that Mr. Steyer's um, model of Treblinka was quite unlike those other models. The other models were uh, not only professionally made but were white in colour and quite um, clinical, even though they had representations of people who were obviously um, suffering. Mr. Steyer's model of Treblinka was in full colour. It, it was 
and I don't mean to put it down, but it was amateurish in that um, it um, it was almost, you know, like um, there's a category of art called folkloric art that is almost, that is just not, um, doesn't have the same aesthetic values. So, you know, he, he was quite pragmatic, you know, for example, like to represent uh, the greenery that, that hid various parts of the camp. He was quite clever. He used, you know, when you go to a butcher and they have those, that green plastic grass, like, yeah. like he used uh-huh. that to represent the greenery, right? Uh-huh. So, um, and you remember when as children we used to have paper cut out dolls, right? Yeah. So his figures, his people looked a little bit, like that, but they were also representations of real people that he had known. So, kind of folksy in its texture. But so could you say it was sort of a simplistic or um, minimalist form? It wasn't simplistic in in that it's ab- it was absolutely redolent with meaning, as I want to try and explain. But um, but it just wasn't. It just wasn't finished in a kind of professional, um, uh, you know, it, its its production values were not high in that sense. Now, the interesting thing about this model is that while it was a realistic, um, and he meant it as a realistic representation of the camp, it was a miniature um, and it collapsed in the one object, the camp, as it evolved through time. So it wasn't realistic in terms of representing the camp at a particular time, but it had all the components that over time that camp had developed, right? Um, but what was most important about it for me was my sort of slow realisation that of the motivation for Mr. Steyer's building of this model and why he gave it to the museum and and to do to kind of realize that we have to understand that um, people who survive trauma have different ways of giving testimony to that trauma so usually we understand testimony in terms of a interview and the the point of it is to give evidence usually in a legal kind of situation, and it's to provide the kind of evidence that doesn't otherwise exist in written documentation or to augment it in some way, right? But there's another understanding of heritage as I began to read around the literature on the Holocaust, um, which kind of gives the... which is about the role of testimony for the survivor in the present, So it's quite complicated to explain. But what it means is that the point of giving a testimony about what occurred in the past is not only to furnish, to provide evidence, it's also to establish a relationship with the person who is listening to that testimony in the present. So there's a kind of ethical relationship or the hope of an ethical relationship being built, the hope that in listening you will not only remember and acknowledge what happened, but you might also do something to prevent that from ever happening again in the future, right? So it's what a, a colleague of mine called Roger Simon calls a terrible gift, 
A testimony is like a terrible gift. You're giving something, but you're, ex- you're expecting something in return. Now, I understood this model of Treblinka a bit like as a gift and a form of testimony. And what that, what that testimony was about was not only what that camp was used for and how what occurred there occurred, but it was also a testimony to Mr. Steyer's own personal history. He was one of the survivors because he had been chosen um, to work at the camp instead of being immediately killed, but his wife and two-year-old daughter were killed. So it's, it's also a memorial to them. So the moral is like a living memory for him. And I understood this when after he died I, and as I was writing my piece on it, I went back to the museum and I, I um, talked to a second-generation survivor who told me that Mr. Steyer used to come there every day in the morning, stand at a particular angle and look down at the passageway where people came in. And she told me that he had told her that what he was remembering and what he was looking at were his wife and little daughter coming in. So I kind of began to understood how the vibrancy and the colour of the model, it had to be like that because for him it was about real people and people that he had loved. It wasn't about the provision of information about a process it was a testimony and a memorial and something that he visited every day of his life so it was so the past was not divorced from him for him from the present and in understanding that i began to understand that our role as a visitor was to attempt to understand that and work with that and ask ourselves what do we need to do in order to prevent this kind of thing from happening again. Yes, I was going to say, so why is this so important? But you've partly answered that by saying that it's important to remember the past so that we don't repeat the, the same things into the future. That's, that's true. Um, m- more recent work of mine has kind of tried to develop that um, because one of the difficulties is that it's not enough to just, you know, repeat the injunction to remember the past or to remember past atrocities. I think that for that to have any real meaning, places like museums and heritage sites need to actually touch the viewer, touch the audience, the, the witness. You know, in this context, the audience is like a witness, to the testimony, right? And so what, what is the role of the museum or the heritage site in facilitating that encounter such that our presence as a witness means something, so that we're touched? And I tend to think that that can happen if there is a connection between who we are and what we believe in and the kinds of experiences that we're listening to in those testimonies, whether it's through oral histories, whether it's through an art object, a model like that of Treblinka. So, for example, um, if you go and visit um, the First Peoples Exhibition at Museum Victoria, Melbourne Museum at the moment in the Bunjilaka Gallery, right? Now, that exhibition 
is very interesting because it's a, at one level it is a complete celebration of uh, Indigenous culture in Victoria and it, their ability to resist the nature of the colonial encounter and it's a celebration uh, of their present-day life. At another level, the exhibition is also itself a form of testimony um, because it's very much um, done in first-person narrative voice, so it's Indigenous voices that we hear rather than the authoritative voice of the museum as an institution. And what they have to say to both Indigenous people and to non-Indigenous people creates a relationship between us. So as a white, non-Indigenous Australian going into that space, I sense that what they're trying to say is our history post-settlement is also your history and you have a responsibility towards us. Now, the way they set that up is by creating and not just by telling us, informing us about what traditional Indigenous culture is like in a kind of traditional anthropological kind of exhibition, but by getting us to feel the importance, the significance of the concept of country for Indigenous people. And they do that through various multimedia installations. And if we take our time and work through that in that exhibition, what we come to understand is that the colonial process in taking country away from Indigenous people was taking away their very humanity. And so our responsibility in the present day is to kind of attempt to make some kind of restitution for that. And that and that restitution is I think, clearly spelt out because there's a whole critique of John Batman's treaty and the kind of illegal, unethical basis of that. So it's quite clear that one of the things we can do as present-day Australians is to work towards pressuring our government to take seriously the idea that we might need a treaty, that we might need a preamble in the Constitution. Now, that's not spelled out per se, but the structure of the exhibition and the way the whole thing works, that at least is what I got from it. So in a sense, you know, there's that idea again. We listen to a testimony and we need to think about what that means for us, what our role as listeners to that testimony testimony might be and it touches us in that case because we're implicated in that history we're not separate from it Mm. so I suppose it's um, a matter of getting people involved and getting people to be able to relate to um, certain yeah yeah. that's exactly right so you know that the kind of most powerful exhibitions for me uh, or the kinds of things I'm interested in studying at the moment are, the, are those exhibitions that try and get you to feel your way towards a new way of understanding society or your, you know, in the case of Australia, um, our encounter with Indigenous people and how we might deal with that in the present or how we might deal with issues around cultural diversity in ways that don't just 
narrow the complexity of what it means to leave, live with cultural diversity down to just recognizing that there are many cultures? Yeah. What does it actually mean to live with many cultures? So exhibitions that try and work through these problems and help people come to terms with what it might mean for them at, their, at the individual level, at the community level. And I think that for me, that's why cultural heritage is really important because you can use it. You can use it to increase distance between people or you can use it to actually try and bring people together. And I'm interested in the latter. Yes, yeah, definitely. So uh, what is the relationship between testimony, memory and art? Ooh, now that's a, that's a tricky one. Um, I suppose um, the kind of work I've done in that area is, again, around traumatic histories. So if we go back to the Holocaust Museum, there's, um, they have on display there the work of a survivor called Sarah Cerrone. And Sarah actually survived the war thanks to her parents' foresight by, being, by pretending to be a Polish youth of non-Jewish um, ethnic background, um, and she worked in uh, labor camps in um, mainland Germany, in Hamburg and other places. But her parents were not so lucky, and they died in Auschwitz, I th- believe. In, in her mid-50s, Sarah began to sculpt. She had never sculpted before. And she began to create pieces that, in a way, I understand them as, a, as, again, a form of testimony. So some of them are sort of commemorative pieces. They, you know, they might represent, say, the chimneys of Auschwitz and, um, and, and commemorate the dead in that way. But others are kind of, again, little miniatures, in mainly in ceramics, although she also um sculpture in bronze but the ones I find more fascinating are actually the ceramic ones and they're very um they're very small um and they're a little bit in the tradition of the ceramic figurine but they represent um her memories and her her kind of experiences of what happened to her and to those she loved during the war and during the Holocaust. So there are representations of deportations, of gathering in the ghetto in the city where she had lived. And so I I read these things as a kind of attempting to work through her trauma. But there there are others where she's working with very complex memories. So, you know... When we talk about memory, I think there, there's kind of, um, well, I, people who work on memory kind of theorize that we have three different kinds of memory. When you and I talk about memory or we might be remembering something, we use what's called a narrative form. It's in the first person or first person plural, so I remember, we remember, and there's a clear distinction between the past and the present. Right? There's a mm-hmm. clear temporal um, narrative sequence there. there. There are those who think that those who have undergone enormous trauma c- 
cannot create that separation between past and present. So there's something called what they call sensory uh, sensory memory, where the sensations that you experienced at the moment of trauma can suddenly appear in the present out of nowhere. And they're literally felt in the body. It's extremely sort of visceral, right? And then there's another form of memory, which in the context of the Holocaust is quite prevalent as well, which, which is that the kind of memory that, ha- that is had by second and third generation survivors, so the children of survivors. And that memory is composed of all the stories and images that they have that are told to them by first generation survivors and then retold through through various cultural formations, films, literature, poetry, painting, etc. Some people call that post-memory, others call it vicarious memory. Now, there's a body of work that Saroni um, produced that, that I understand as a form of sensory memory where she depicts people um, by showing just their heads on bunks um, we assume in Auschwitz. Now, in one way, that is a kind of standard visual imagery that many of us have, if any of us have seen images of Auschwitz, right? But if you read her autobiography, there's a moment in there where she talks about her mother, whom she had left behind in Poland, appearing to her in a dream. And it's just her head that appears wrapped in a veil. And her mum is saying goodbye to her. And Sarah, of course, wakes up and, you know, and to this day she doesn't know whether that was a nightmare or whether she really did see her mum in her last kind of moment. So it's an incredibly emotional and important turning point in her story of her life and her autobiography and here she is in her 50s creating these ceramic sculptures representing people in those bunks she herself had never been there she'd heard the stories but she had this nightmare this 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 experience of her mum you know so it's and and what is so absolutely um powerful about the sculpture that I'm thinking of, which you can see at the Holocaust Museum now, is this woman's head with her eyes just coming out. And if you just think of Sarah sculpting those eyes, possibly thinking of her mother, it just becomes such a powerful object. Mm. Oh, it certainly is. Yeah. So, you know, mm. it's a it's a form of testimony. It's rendering mm. her experience, her memory of her mum, mm. her possibly, you know, I can't be sure of that, but if you kind of put the artwork side by side with her autobiography, side by side with these readings I've been doing around different kinds of memory, then you can begin to see how these objects are part of a landscape um, and part of this kind of wider understanding of what I'm calling a testimony. Um, so understanding that art can function as a form of testimony 
mm-hmm. that it can be an attempt to embody people's memories and that that these things have if you kind of have enough information to be able to relate these things together these objects can be very very powerful i mean that object would be powerful even if you didn't know that story just because this woman's face is is so anguished and those eyes are just looking straight at you and and as an audience even if you knew nothing about sarah's autobiography i, I don't think you could avoid but but sort of thinking my god you know what what's my role in this am i what's she asking me to do because those eyes are looking straight at you you're looking it's at eye level you can't avoid but to have human contact mm. so what's the ethics of this situation here what what am i is she asking me for pity is she ask, asking me to empathize is she asking me to remember her is she asking me to do something that psychologists talk about those who give testimony as wanting to recover something that they lost at their moment of trauma because when in a situation like genocide what you lose is your humanity another human being cannot recognize you as a human being so the giving of testimonies an incredibly courageous act that is saying not only this happened and i want you to know to know it happened but it it's reaching out to a listener it's wanting to create that human to human link mm, and i think that sarah was doing that with her sculptures yeah certainly certainly very very powerful having the the combined the art and the testimony together well thank yeah. you thank you very much for coming on to radical philosophy today that's a pleasure really really nice to be here